Well, today, my father would be 72 years old. He, by God's grace, is beyond time as he's face to face with the Lord. You know, my dad was not, uh, was not real great with emotional things. That was not his forte. Until later on in life when mom got him all softened up and, uh, you know, wasn't sure how to deal with all the sensitivity that came with getting older. And I can tell you uh, there were times uh, when we were kids when we all uh, knew that, you know, dad was, dad was fun, dad was hard work, dad was strength, uh, but emotional support you got from mom. That's where the, the soft places came. And... And that's not in any way a bad thing. That's a good and, and beautiful thing. But every once in a while, my dad would uh, surprise me. And every once in a while, he'd write a note or a letter. And uh, when I turned 18 and prepared to, uh, to enter manhood, so to speak, uh, my dad wrote a letter to me. It wasn't anything huge or major. It wasn't really long uh, nobody's going to publish this in some book of memoirs. Uh, but in this letter, he conveyed to me some things that I already knew, most things that I already knew, some reminders, some clarifications about life and what it meant to be a man. Mostly it was encouragement and making sure that I understood how much he loved me. That wasn't supposed to get emotional, but, you know, there you are. That's how letters are sometimes. Some letters inform us. Some letters remind us of things that we know. Some, some correct us or rebuke us. Some encourage. As we look at the book of Ephesians, we're going to be moving into this series. Uh, this, this book is a letter, an epistle is the, the name we give to these these letters in the New Testament. We call them epistles, which just means letter. It's just a fancy thing. So when we look at this letter, uh, we need to understand some things about it. This letter is an encouraging letter. It's instructive. It's challenging. It's like a father writing to his children to encourage them, to remind them of who they are, and more importantly, whose they are. To remind them what it means to bear that family name. Our core reality today, as we go into this overview of the book of Ephesians, this all-for-one series kicks off with this. God's great purpose is to bring all things together under His kingdom rule in Jesus Christ. God's great purpose is to bring all things together under His kingdom rule in Jesus Christ. This is the theme that we will see unfold in the book of Ephesians. It'll take many different forms as Paul works through some different phases of clarification uh, for the people who are receiving this letter and ultimately, by extension, for us. We'll look at some basic theology, some ideas about uh, what salvation is, how that actually works, the nature of the church in light of that, the conduct of those who claim Christ. All of these things will come together as we, um, 
as we work through this letter. Let's read that core reality together so that we're all hearing ourselves say it. Say it with me. God's great purpose is to bring all things together under His kingdom rule in Jesus Christ. Now, before we get too far into this, we need to get some background uh, information on the book of Ephesians. Anytime we're studying a book of the Bible, we need to be able to understand the context in which the author is writing to the original recipients. How many of you know Paul was not writing to any of us at real life in 2021? He didn't know Three Oaks existed. Real life certainly didn't exist. There was no, no access to this for those outside of the immediate area. When he was writing this, he was writing to a specific group of people with a specific purpose in mind. We cannot, we dare not, anytime we are reading the scriptures, that force our perspective on it. It's a danger that we fall into in reading many things. And we see the dangers all around us when we try to force contemporary values onto historical situations. If we were to judge past presidents or past people according to our culture today, we are grossly, grossly misjudging the situation we're not taking into account what was happening at the time all that led up to their thinking and their living so as we look at the book of ephesians we want to understand a few things about it so that we can understand what paul is saying to it to his readers and therefore extrapolate from that principles that we can apply to our lives god by his holy spirit inspired these things to be written but the human authors have a specific intent. God's intent is bigger and broader, amen? His intent for us builds on and draws from those principles. So uh, first off, let's take a look at the author and the recipient and purpose. In a nutshell, Paul wrote, uh, wrote to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding area to clarify God's plan and what it means to be in Christ. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding area to clarify God's plan and what it means to be in Christ. So as, uh, as the letter indicates, Paul is the accepted author and, uh, in the 19th century and following as people began to, to add uh, what might be called modern criticism uh, to these things, began to uh, revise some of these, these things and question the authorship uh, that has been accepted throughout the history of the church, even from the earliest times. The letter identifies Paul as the author. Uh, the earliest copies that we have of it do not mention Ephesus, even though the book uh, is, is called Ephesians based on the presence of that, that city's name. But for the earliest copies, we don't have that. And some scholars, late scholars, have begun to say, well, maybe it wasn't really to the Ephesians, uh, but the copy we have was read there. And that is possible, uh, although not likely. What is more likely, and the tenor of the letter seems to be that Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, as well as intending it as sort of a circular letter for the other churches in Asia Minor. And so his 
his delivery guy, his friend Tychicus, who brings it to Ephesus to deliver that letter, is likely also taking it to Laodicea and the other churches in the area uh, to read the content to them. And so some of those uh, earlier copies would not have perhaps had the, the name Ephesus in there because it was read in other places. In all likelihood, uh, it is both. It's for Ephesus and for those in the surrounding area. So unlike so many of uh, his letters or epistles, Paul doesn't address a specific error, heresy, or sin in Ephesians. As we look at, at the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul's not, he's not criticizing their conduct as he does with uh, with Corinth, where he's looking at the sinful behavior that's there, say, hey, we got to get this right. You're, you're doing the wrong thing, and he doesn't rebuke them. And there isn't a specific heresy that he's addressing, like we might see in Colossians or Galatians, where he is correcting a, a, uh, a cultic Gnosticism or proto-Gnosticism, if you will, before the Gnostics arrived in, in Colossae, or the legalism of the the Jewish folks, the Judaizers, who are trying to put the Jewish law onto the believers in Galatians, he's not addressing those things. Instead, what he's doing in Ephesians is, uh, is encouraging them, he's clarifying. He's not, he's not making an apologetic argument. He's not trying to defend the faith. He's not making an evangelistic appeal for the faith trying to win unbelievers to Christ. He's specifically writing to those who have already embraced Christ in order to give them a greater understanding of what that actually means. He shares with them God's great overarching purpose to bring all things together under His kingdom rule in Jesus Christ. He digs into, gets some depth on, uh, God's initiating, redeeming love, and the nature of salvation. He emphasizes the unity of both Jew and Gentile believers in Christ. In Ephesus, they have a, a mixture there. there. He began his teaching in the Jewish synagogue and was basically rejected there, so he went next door and taught at somebody's house. He had this habit of starting among the Jews, and some would receive and some would reject. Generally, the majority would reject, and then he would go on and continue to teach. So as he dealt with the church in Ephesus, there's this division that was prominent uh, in, in the Near East in particular, but wherever you would find Jews, they as they do today, would see Gentiles, the nations, those who are outside of Israel or Judah, as not being part of God's people. So as Paul dealt with this, those who had now come to Christ still had this dividing wall, this hostility between Jew and Gentile. And he emphasizes that in Christ, there's just one, just one church. He died the same for the Jew as he did for the Gentile. And you don't have some special in because you're one or the other. So he emphasizes that unity in Christ. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. He instructs them regarding uh, what authentic Christian living looks like and how God equips us for the spiritual battle. 
So once he gets this establishment about who we are in Christ, the first three chapters focus on our, our position, who we are, our identity. It's, uh, theologians would call it the indicative part. It indicates who we are. And then the, the last half of it, the last three chapters, focus not on our position, but on our practice, the imperative part. Because you are this, this is what you should look like. This is what you should live like. Because you are in Christ, here's how you walk in Christ. So Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding area to clarify God's plan and what it means to be in Christ. Let's look a little bit at the context of what's going on at the time. First off, recognize that Nero is the Roman emperor. Nero was the last of the Julio-Claudian line. He reigned from 54 to 68. Uh, There's a lot of uh, just very interesting and bizarre history with Nero. Uh, He was largely hated by uh, leaders, politicians, military. In fact, he was uh, overthrown and tried in absentia toward the end of his reign and uh, found to be uh, uh, a threat to the empire. Uh, at which point he committed suicide. He was the first of the emperors to commit suicide. So uh, Nero was looked down upon by the traditionalists because he was a performer. He liked to sing and play. And while he was also a great builder, he loved to to build and expand, uh, put up theaters and, and so on, traditionalists saw it as denigrating his position as Augustus to... Uh, for him to participate but he liked to be the star of the show so he would go and be in the plays as an actor as a singer as a musician and the traditionalists didn't like that a lot of the people however it appears according to historians today a lot of the people the populace really seemed to like nero maybe because he was so much different than what they were expecting Nonetheless, Nero was known for debauchery, treachery, uh, he, as so many of the emperors were. And he began a, uh, an actual persecution of Christians out of spite mostly, he used them as a scapegoat. When the, the city of Rome caught fire, many speculated that Nero set the fire or orchestrated that so that it would clear the way for his building projects. But he needed a scapegoat. He blamed the Christians. And as he blamed the Christians for this, he would then take the opportunity to burn them alive. The reports were that he would actually coat them in pitch and post them, tie them to stakes in his garden and set them on fire and walk among them in the light of their burning bodies. It was less a matter of belief and conviction about rule of law than spitefulness. Nero was a very interesting character, and with his suicide, uh, the, the dynasty of Julius Caesar and Claudius came to an end. Now, Ephesus is the most important city of Asia Minor, both as a commercial center and for its temple to Artemis. Ephesus is the most important city of Asia Minor, both as a commercial center and for its temple to Artemis. Artemis is the Greek, Diana is the Roman equivalent. Uh, She's the goddess of a variety of things, including chastity and fertility, uh, 
wildlife and, and uh, the, the temple that was at Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, it was filled with very ornate sculptures and the nature of this goddess uh, was uh, somewhat obscene perhaps by uh, standards of today. But the, the artwork that was there was phenomenal. And along with many of the other uh, wonders of the ancient world, uh, there, it was in this pagan temple, this pagan ritualistic place, that you would find some of the best art and architecture that society had to offer. It was actually destroyed a few times and rebuilt, uh, and each time it grew bigger and greater. Uh, Ephesus was at the, uh, it was a port city at the crossroads of trade. And so uh, many would, would call it the most important, the most significant, the foremost city because of its commercial value. It uh, is in what is now Turkey and it had a port in the Kester River that opened into the Aegean Sea. And because of its strategic location for trade, the commercial aspect was vast, and it, it just continued to grow. It was also, as every other major city, filled with debauchery and immorality. It's not really hard to see that. The more population, the more money, uh, particularly when you're dealing with some of the pagan rituals of worship and the, the cultural standards that were there, the immorality ran rampant. It was not in any way uh, hidden or in the dark. So in this vastness of Ephesus, it was considered to be by many the, the city that was second only to Rome in the empire, even greater than Corinth. This was a great, great city. So Paul spent about three years in Ephesus. Paul spent about three years in Ephesus. Nero's the Roman emperor at this time. Ephesus is the most important city of Asia Minor, what is now modern Turkey. Uh, and uh, it, it's equivalent, if you're familiar with Selçuk, Turkey, uh, that's the, the basic place, about three miles apart from where Ephesus once stood. Uh, it is the most important city of Asia Minor, both as a commercial center and for its temple to Artemis. And Paul spent about three years there in Ephesus. As we read... Uh, in Acts chapter 20 earlier. Uh, in fact, you can turn there now to take a look just briefly at Acts 18, 19, and 20. <clears throat> we, see in, um, we see in chapter 18, Paul is in Corinth, and uh, picking up at verse, at verse 18 of chapter 18, uh, it says that Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. So his goal here is he's sailing back to Antioch in Syria. And as they're traveling, they stop at Ephesus. And he leaves Priscilla and Aquila, his friends and partners in the ministry, there at Ephesus. He himself, it says, went on to the synagogue 
and went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. This is on his short stop in Ephesus. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it, if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem, greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. Jumping ahead to, to chapter 19, we see that Apollos, who was a great orator, uh, had come in. And, and Apollos uh, was also in Ephesus. He went to preach there. Uh, but did not get the depth, uh, apparently, that Paul did. They did not uh, introduce or understand the Holy Spirit. So Paul clarifies that later. Uh, and they send Apollos on to Corinth, starting with verse 1 of chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. That's a baptism of repentance. It wasn't an identification with Christ, per se. It was an identification with repenting, turning from my way to God's way. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Don't miss that. You're talking about this massive city, second city of the empire, first city of the province of Asia. Twelve men. This is the beginning of the church in Ephesus here, as Paul is dealing with them. <clears throat> so Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there. Jumping ahead to... Um, oops, I turned too many pages. Jumping ahead to uh, verse 23... After some phenomenal uh, activity that goes on that's very exciting to read about, as we saw back when we studied the book of Acts, in verse 23 we see, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So what happens after this, Demetrius, who is obviously invested in the worship of, of Artemis, he stirs up the others in the trade to see that, well, wait a minute here, these Christians aren't buying statues and coins and other trinkets for Artemis. They're not worshiping Artemis. This is a problem religiously and also economically. Now, Paul has not gone out, according to the record here, and condemned these things, but as he drew people into Christ, bringing them to the reasonableness of faith in the Son of God, they left behind lesser foolish things. They stopped their pagan worship. And this began to bite the wallet of those who were invested in it. 
a riot ensues. And things go very, very badly there. It gets settled. Paul stays until he, until he leaves. He spends about three years there. And then as he is, uh, as he is passing back through, he uh, calls the elders together as we read previously. So let's talk about the message. We've looked at the author, recipient, and purpose and the context. Let's take a look at the message of the book of Ephesians. Now, we're going to get into some details on these things throughout this study. We'll, we'll dig down a little bit. We'll take a, a fairly extensive amount of time to look at this six-chapter letter. I would encourage you to read all six chapters this week. It doesn't take you that long. Even I can do it, and I'm a really slow reader. But take a look. Read the book of Ephesians straight through. We're going to go back and look at the details of it. Today, we want to get a, a basic overview to understand what is the overall message that Paul is, is telling these folks, that he's writing to the church there at Ephesus and throughout the province of Asia. And then what can we draw from that? As again, and we'll get more specific as we go, I'll try to take as little time as I can today. First, notice this. God has a great overarching agenda. God has a great overarching agenda. That's the first thing we want to recognize here. As Paul is laying this out, we see from the very beginning in chapter 1 that God is doing something. God's not passive. He is active. And not only is he active, but he has a specific purpose. And in this purpose, it's something that God has been doing from before time until the end. And we are blessed to be a part of that. When I say we, I mean those of us who have received Christ by faith. And that faith that we have, as he'll point out in chapter 2, is the gift of God. If you desire to know Christ, it's because God has put it in you to do so. If you do not desire to do Christ, to, to know Christ, it's because you're normal. Maybe we don't think about that. It's normal to not want to know Christ. What we want is to fashion a God in our own image. What we want is to worship something that fits our needs. This is the nature of the pagan religions. It's the nature of tribal religions. You create a religion that, based on your observation of the world, fills in the gaps for you. We need to recognize that the basis, the very foundation of Christianity is that it is not, in that sense, a world religion. It is a truth claim about reality rooted in a personal relationship with the Savior, who is the Lord of the universe. So when we are looking at this, we need to understand, as they do, that God has a great overarching agenda. Two things we want to recognize about that. First, life is not random or meaningless. Life is not random or meaningless. 
as we go through this, we'll see that God purposes, He predestines, He chooses, God initiates, and God accomplishes. The things that God purposes in His divine will are accomplished by God. He's the one that does the doing. When we are saved, it is God saving us. He's the one that does the doing. The only thing that I bring to the table when it comes to my salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. We'll see that as we go through this, uh, this wonderful book. Notice, secondly, that Christ's kingdom rule is a settled matter. Christ's kingdom rule is a settled matter. Notice uh, in our memory verse for today, and I would uh, draw your attention to it. It's actually two verses. At the end of chapter 1, we see Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, where Paul, in his conclusion of that particular thought, says, And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. I'm going to read that again. I want, you to, I want you to kind of let that sink in and grab it. And as you do, bear in mind that Christ's kingdom rule is a settled matter. Paul writes, And God placed all things, God placed, past tense, all things under His feet, and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. This is past tense. He has placed all things under the feet of Christ. He has appointed Christ to be the head of the church, of everything for the church. And the church is the body. Christ is the head the church is the body. We, believers, built together into a temple, as we'll see later, are the fullness, together, the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way. This is already a settled matter. It's important for us to recognize in God's great overarching agenda that nothing can thwart His plans. It is already settled. There is no need for fear because the one who has purposed it is also the one who will perform it. It is as if it were already done. The future to God is as history is to us. It's already done. Life is not random or meaningless. Christ's kingdom rule is a settled matter. Next point we want to see in the message of the book of Ephesians is that God brings reconciliation through Christ. God brings reconciliation through Christ. The theme that we will see throughout this, and this is why we've titled this series All for One, is that this book is about oneness. It's about unity, but perhaps not in the way those terms might get bandied about during political conversations. It's not just everybody get along. It certainly isn't comply with this particular line. That's how we have unity, like you might have seen in Soviet Russia. 
plenty of unity as long as you follow the party line. The unity of God is set in place by His reconciliation. We were created, all things in the universe were created to give God glory. We were created for His pleasure. To borrow from a Toby Mac song, we were made to love Him. The problem is, in Genesis 3, at the beginning of creation, we blew it. We messed it up. And we chose to do our thing instead of God's thing. We chose to do exactly the opposite of what we were created for. And we tried to live for our pleasure rather than God's. We tried to live for ourselves rather than for Him. And in reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, what God is doing, what He has been doing from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation, what he began then and will complete in the day of Christ is to bring all things together, to reconcile all things to himself so that we find the absolute, complete shalom, the oneness and harmony of the entirety of creation doing exactly what it was designed to do. It begins with the building of God's people through redeeming and ransoming us in Christ. We'll see that play out throughout the book. God's, God's agenda involves this idea of reconciliation and oneness. Three points that we are going to be able to see as we go through this. I want to make sure that you grab them today. Have these in mind as we walk through this letter. First, this reconciliation that God brings through Christ makes us one with Christ. One with Christ. We're reconciled to God. Notice in chapter 1, verse 7. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. He continues, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. Here's the purpose, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So, in Christ, we find reconciliation with God. We are made one with Christ. Again, God is doing this. Secondly, we see that God makes us one in Christ. We're one with Christ, and now being one with Christ, we are one in Christ. We are reconciled to one another. Being one with Christ reconciles us to God. Being one in Christ is being reconciled to one another. Take a look at chapter 2, beginning with verse 17. Having walked through the nature of salvation, here in 2, verse 17, Paul writes, He, Christ, came and preached peace to you. He came and preached peace to you who were far away. And peace to those who were near. He's speaking in terms of Jew and Gentile here. Those who are Gentiles, those who are outside of Israel, were far away from God. Pagans 
in an unbelieving world. Those who were in Israel, those who were raised with the Torah, with the law, understanding God, were near to God. They were in Israel. They were receiving instruction in our way of thinking. They're growing up in church. They're learning all the things. So he says to them that in Christ... He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him, through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, speaking to the Gentiles, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The reconciliation that God brings us through Christ makes us one with Christ. It makes us one in Christ by reconciling us to one another. Thirdly, we see that it makes us one for Christ. One for Christ. Our conduct becomes reconciled to His his person. It becomes reconciled to our identity in Christ. There is a wholeness in those who are made His. Because what we do is a reflection of who we are. Having been made one with Christ, we live as one in Christ, and our entire life becomes a unity of living for Christ. All that we do is now for Him. Harmony between who we are. Harmony between who we are and how we live. Jesus becomes Lord master of our living this is the unity that we find in christ turn to chapter five and just see the first couple of of verses there chapter four speaks of it as well but in chapter five we see follow god's example therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The letter that I mentioned earlier, my father reminded me of the family name. What it means to bear that name. When we're living in the wholeness of a life that is reflecting who we actually are in Christ, We are representing Him as we bear that family name. One with Christ, one in Christ, one for Christ. So we've seen that God has a a great overarching agenda. That's part of, uh, of Paul's whole clarity of this letter. He wants the people to understand, look... God's not messing around. He's not out there in outer space somewhere leaving you to do your thing. That was the picture that they had of the gods. The gods are on Mount Olympus or or wherever they happen to hang out. They're doing their thing. 
and it's not really connected. One competes with another, and there's a randomness to it. The gods were seen as capricious and arbitrary. They just mess with people sometimes. And Paul wants us to know that God's not like that. He has one unified purpose, and he's carrying out that purpose, and he has been from the beginning. From before you were born, he knew you, and he chose you in Christ according to his sovereign grace, according to his love, so that you could be to the praise of his glorious grace. And everything that is happening in the world around you, in your own life, is for that purpose. Working out God's great overarching agenda. God brings reconciliation through Christ. All of this hinges on Him. But notice also that when He set all things, when He placed all things under Christ's feet, He also appointed Him as the head for everything in the church. And it's significant to recognize in in chapter 1, verse 23, that the church is his body. He is the head. We are his body. We are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This brings us to the last point here. God carries out his program through the church. God carries out his program through the church. And we'll see as we, uh, as we read at the end of uh, chapter 2 that we are being built together into a temple, a temple where God's presence is made manifest. The temple is where God displays Himself. It's not wasted on the Ephesians that Paul uses this temple language. Now, coming from a specifically Jewish perspective, they recognized the temple as where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, where God would make His presence known, and the priests would go in and make sacrifices as The Gentiles there, the pagans, they would recognize, as they all would, the great temple of Artemis present in Ephesus. This constant reminder, when your biggest building, this massive, vast thing, is dedicated to drawing your attention to this so-called deity, you can't escape it. It's in the backdrop of everything that you do. And Paul is saying, you think that's great? God is building you as living stones into a holy dwelling where He is put on display in you. God carries out His program through the church. Three points here we want to see. First, He chose us by sovereign grace to be His. Chapter 1 focuses in uh, quite a bit on this. We'll be looking at at much of this next week. But starting with verse 3, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us. For He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption 
Adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one that He loves. God carries out His program through the church. He chose us by sovereign grace to be His. Also, we display His glory, character, and dominion. We display His glory, character, and dominion. I wanted to make sure that we use this word dominion. It's not one that we use every day, but it's important for us to be able to connect with some of these older terms, older vocabulary, that help us to see what it is that we're talking about. The the church, the individuals that make up the church, but specifically the church as a whole, built into a temple wherein God manifests Himself, displays Himself to the world. We reflect Him. We show how glorious He is. God is seen as great when we reflect Him accurately. But what Paul is pointing out throughout the last three chapters in particular is what it looks like when we live like Christ as children of God, imitators like children imitate their parents. We follow in those footsteps. We do those things. We talk in parenting often about how values are more often caught than taught. It's not so much how much you know, but the example that you're following. How are you living? My children can know my family history backwards and forwards, but if they don't represent the family well by displaying the character that we want to be the hallmark of who we are, then all that knowledge is a waste. In the same way, we can have great sound doctrine as Christ followers, but if we're not actually following Christ, that doctrine is a waste. And in displaying His character through our living, when we live with Christ as the Lord of our living, we are displaying His dominion. What is dominion? It's His rule, His kingdom rule and reign. His domination, if you will, that all things are under Christ's feet and all of us are all for Him all the time. When we live in this way, we display His glory, His character, and His dominion. Thirdly, we represent Him in spiritual battle. We represent Him in spiritual battle. God carries out His program through the church as He chose us by sovereign grace to be His. He chose us by sovereign grace to be His, to belong to Him, to bear that family name. We display His glory, character, and dominion in the same way a child is the display, the manifestation of his or her parents. And we represent Him in spiritual battle. Don't be confused. We'll talk more about the spiritual battle later on. But understand, this is not a a battle between God and Satan as if they were somehow peers. 
we are in a spiritual battle all the day, all the time. It's every day, constantly. You can't escape it. It's all around you. You may not be aware of it, but you're in it. When you're living in a war zone, it doesn't matter if you're paying attention to the war. It's still going on. So it's best to be on your guard. But the battle is between us and the forces of evil. God is he's other. He is beyond. He is holy. So while Satan hates him and seeks to attack and overthrow him, good luck with that. Ain't going to happen. So he has his attention focused on his image bearers. Created forces versus created forces. And God does not need us in the battle, but we need him. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to put on the full armor of God. And what we need to recognize here is that as his representatives in the spiritual battle, he equips us. He gives us a charge. He instructs us. We carry his flag. And as we display his dominion, and we'll, we'll see this in, in later studies here, we display the rule of Christ on earth. And when he returns, his church, his people will rule with him. We represent him in spiritual battle. Therefore, he equips and protects and defends us. Now, as we wrap this up, we need to look at how should we respond? And I would encourage you, every time you're studying a passage of Scripture, to, to figure out what you can about the author and the context and the background. But look at the, the type of writing you're dealing with. This, the genre of this is it's a letter, it's an epistle. And it's written to a specific group of people to communicate some specific truths. These epistles, these letters are, are propositional in nature. I'm going to say this, I'm going to support this. It's not telling a story, it's communicating directly with some very clear truth claims. But there is an intended response. And as we look at what Paul's intended response is for those in Ephesus and the area around Ephesus, then we can draw from that so that we can manifest that intended response in ourselves. How do we respond? First, with confidence, understanding that God is sovereign. Our first response should be confidence, understanding that God is is sovereign. Again, like with dominion, I intentionally wanted to make sure that we use this term sovereign so that we grasp it. We want to be comfortable with them. This is the nature of encouragement. This is an encouraging letter, as I mentioned earlier. The nature of encouragement is to give courage, to give confidence, as Paul fixes God's great purpose, mighty power, and glorious, gra glorious grace firmly in our minds. We ought rightly to grow in our confidence that God is in control. He is sovereign. He holds all authority. All rule, all dominion is His. We ought to be able to grow in that confidence that God is in control and that His plans, His plans for me as an individual, His plans for us as a church, 
as His church and His plans for the world at large, we need to understand that they cannot be thwarted. What God purposes, He performs. It is a settled matter. So we should respond with confidence, understanding that God is sovereign. Secondly, Paul intends that we would respond with peace, understanding the nature of our salvation. Knowing that God is sovereign gives us confidence. We can rest in His ability to carry out His plans. He has authority and power. And He is able to do what He sets forth. But we need to also recognize the very nature of our salvation. This is where the church has so often gone wrong in the millennia that followed Christ. As we became more and more like a world religion, and more and more caught up in the temporal things of this world, bound up with, with government and the state, or with the doing of things and checking off our religious checklist, we've lost track of what our salvation is all about. Ephesus is also mentioned in Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaks to this church and says, you've done all these great things. It doesn't have a specific criticism. There's no heresy they're dealing with. They haven't sinned. But he charges them with this one thing. You've lost your first love. You got it all right. But you lost sight of the nature of this. Paul here is reminding the Ephesians and us of the nature of salvation, the nature of our specific salvation. So I want to encourage you, if you are a believer, as you wrestle through what he's talking about here, to grasp the full depth and breadth of God's glorious grace to us. And if you're not a believer yet, you haven't come to this place where you're all in with Jesus. Maybe you don't, don't quite know if you buy it yet. Or maybe you get it. And you're, you're starting to see this and you, you just haven't quite made that step of committing. I want you to understand as we walk through the book of Ephesians that God is telling you this is about Him. He does it. You don't have to be good enough because you can't be good enough. This is about His grace. And if you're feeling that tug right now, it's because His Spirit has already put it in you to respond. I want to encourage you to do that. (coughs) Understanding the nature of our salvation provides both internal and external peace. Knowing that my salvation is all of God and not at all of me provides the security of knowing I can't unearn something I never deserved in the first place. That's our blessed assurance, our comfort, our confidence. It wasn't me that brought me here, so I can't blow it. It places my confidence squarely in the Lord and not in my own righteousness or even my own ability to trust Him. Secondly, 
externally, knowing that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> knowing that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, it, it reminds me that we're all equally dead in sin. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your problem is, everyone is dead in sin apart from Christ. And by God's sovereign grace, we are made equally alive in Christ, regardless of your background, regardless of what you've done in the past. The ground at the foot of the cross is level for all. There's no room for division or hostility. There's no room in the Christian life for partiality of any kind, for racial bigotry, for misogyny, for looking down on someone from a different political party, or looking down on someone's education or lack thereof. It doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't even matter what you smell like. What matters is do you know Him? And if you do, Understand, it's only because He has opened your eyes to see what your sinful, hard heart could not see on its own. There's an internal and external peace as He has made us one with Christ, one in Christ, one for Christ. We respond with peace, understanding the nature of our salvation. Lastly, our response should be Reflection, and I don't mean by reflection, contemplation, but that we should reflect Him. Reflection, understanding our identity in Christ. As He said in chapter 5, as dearly loved children, follow God's example. When I understand who I am in Christ, when I grapple with the meaning and power of being in Christ, it changes everything. Understanding what Christ has done for me and in me makes me able to let Christ live through me. I begin to walk in the new identity He's given me. I begin to reflect His reality in my daily living. That reflection happens mainly in the context of relationships. And we'll see that throughout the letter. As we work our way through Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, I pray that this study will help each of us to develop greater confidence in Christ, deeper and broader peace in Christ, and an increasingly accurate reflection of Christ in our daily walk. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you.